Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Steenson. We're uh, together walking alongside those of you that have been uh, listening and watching this program. We're walking through St. Irenaeus's Against Heresies. We're getting close to the end of Book 4, but uh, but it's a slow process, right, Monsignor? <laughs> It certainly is, yeah. Um, but I think worth it, and I appreciate the emails that I've received from some of you who have, have enjoyed uh, the pace that we're going. I hope you do. Again, as I mentioned last week, we, we really assume that you're reading the book along with us. As I've mentioned many times, we're using John Keeble's translations, which is downloadable from the internet. So you can get the very version for free, or you can buy it, or there are other translations. And I think particularly today, we're going to look at book four, chapter 33. And we're just going to do one chapter today, but it's a long chapter, 15 sections. And... This particular section, on the one hand, has a lot of meat in it, but it basically is focused on one issue, and that is, and that's the title for this episode, is the truly spiritual disciple. The truly spiritual disciple. And I think this is one of those chapters that, in the context of all of uh, Irenaeus's book, uh, brings the issue up to today in a very important issue. I mean, Monsignor, there's been a lot of books out over the last couple of years about discipleship, intentional discipleship. We hear it all the time. Uh and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I remember once being in a church. In fact, this was so long ago, I can't remember if I heard about this or whether I actually did this. But I remember in a new members class, people introducing themselves. And at some point as people were introducing themselves, hi, I'm Bill, and, and I'm the teacher. And, and at some point somebody said, I'm Fred and I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ disguised as a pipe fitter or something like that. Well, that caught on, so pretty soon everybody was going around saying that they were a disciple of Jesus Christ disguised as a uh, truck driver. Or, and, and, uh, and the idea is, yeah, we, we want to identify ourselves as a disciple of Jesus Christ, but how do we know if, in fact, we are a faithful disciple? And that's why, Monsignor, I think that what Irenaeus is doing in the entire book and what he's doing in this chapter is really pertinent to our own day. 
Yes, Marcus, I, I agree. Um, just trying to imagine now when, when he's sitting there writing this, you know, his audience are probably not the rank and file of the church um, because a lot of them wouldn't be able to read probably, but, but certainly his main audience are bishops, the bishops in the area. And um, he's in, inviting them to aspire to be true disciples too. And the, the word that keeps coming to me when I read, when I read uh, through this chapter is discernment. Yeah. Uh, a, a truly spiritual disciple is able to discern. Yeah. yeah. And it's behind this whole chapter, it, it, it's bookended by a quote from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. And it's, it's there in chapter 33, section 1 on page 404. We're going to be looking at pages 404 through 414. And he says, um, such a truly spiritual disciple, and then the end of that paragraph, while he judges all men, is himself judged of none. And that's how he begins chapter 33, and then he ends chapter 33 on page 414. And if you go to 414 at the top, beginning of the first full paragraph, this man then searches out all, but is himself searched out of no man. So, Monsignor, this not only gets us to the question of what does St. Irenaeus mean that the true spiritual disciple judges all but is himself not judged, searches out all but is himself not searched out, but it gets us to what St. Paul meant. Yeah, it's and this is a very impressive chapter because he takes um, 1 Corinthians 2, 15, and it as you point out, it's the beginning and the end of 33, chapter 33. Yeah, and that's why I'd like um, to, first of all, let me, and uh, I'm, I'm going to give Monsignor the overall outline that I've put together, and I think you've done the same thing. So you go ahead and correct yeah. me if, if you want to, but to the audience, what I'd like to do, here's the way I'd like to approach the program. In that I want to, first of all, just give a complete overview of the entire chapter, from an eagle's view of it. And then, <clears throat> and then, second of all, I want us, before we jump into the chapter, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which in my mind is in the back of Irenaeus' mind. And then from that, Monsignor, and particularly I will lead this to you, Monsignor, you to take us through and you point out some of the parts of the details that you want us to look at. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great, Marcus. Okay, because for me, I didn't think the details of the actual discussion were as important as, as the one issue, and that is that the truly spiritual disciple, if he's been formed— has this spirit-given grace to discern, to judge, 
And this is what the chapter is about, what he's able to judge, what he's able to see, what he's able to discern. Now, again, so here's the overview. In the end of chapter 32, we see the summary of that there's two testaments, there's one author, and that one author, these two testaments are summarized in the apostolic doctrine. And this apostolic doctrine, which is in the church, which forms the succession of bishops, the the elders, all of that is what provide the formation for a person. Now, we're not talking about just bishops or, or priests, or we're talking about you and me. Individuals forms us to be a truly spiritual disciple who had received the Spirit of God and had received what had been presented in the stuff we've been looking at. And that's when Irenaeus quotes Paul and says, this spiritual, this truly spiritual follower of Jesus Christ is able to judge or discern all men, but himself is judged by none. And what we might want to talk about, what do we mean by that? How, how do we understand that a, a truly spiritual person is beyond judgment of anyone? What, is, what does Paul mean? And then, beginning in section 1 through section 7, Irenaeus lists all the different groups that are out there, all the different voices that a, a, a Christian is bombarded with. And what he's saying is that a truly spiritual disciple is able to discern these different groups and their truthfulness. And the groups he's listing are the Gentiles, the Jews, the Marcionites, the Valentinians, the wicked Gnostics, the Ebionites, those who bring an unreal Christ, false prophets, and then the final two are schismatics and those who are outside the church. Those are all the different voices that he's addressing in this. And he is saying that the truly spiritual disciple, because of how he's been formed, and by the Spirit and by the grace he's been doing, has the gift of being able to fight the battles with all these voices. And then in section 8, we he works us up to a summary of this true knowledge. And this true knowledge, again, Monsignor, I'm going to leave it to you if, if you want us to go into more detail with that. It's a great paragraph. Section 8 is a great paragraph. It, I just thought, yeah, I thought, what a great thing for the Coming Home Network. That's what we, what we believe. Yeah, for those of you watching, we believe that what we're talking about today, in many ways, undergirds the reason the Coming Home Network exists, because of all these voices. Section 8 is, I got the whole thing underlined and highlighted, Monsignor. <laughs> Three <laughs> lines going up and down the side. I mean, it's just, it's important. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, and then, with that true knowledge, if you're, if you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ and you're able to work through all the voices that are trying to tell you how to live your life, and then this is the knowledge, what's the end of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are persecuted. If you're living the Beatitudes... And your faith will live in the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit and humility and, and detachment and all that. You're, you're going to be persecuted. 
And so he has a section in section 9 about true martyrdom. True martyrdom. You ex- a true disciple accepts martyrdom. But there's another aspect that a true disciple is able to discern, and that's in sections 10 through 14, are the, the prophets of the Old Testament that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And it's a, isn't it, Monsignor? It's a, it's a beautiful it's, selection. It's, it's, and you know, the transition, Marcus, is, um, I thought, between those two sections is uh, that the prophets prophesied not only about Christ, but about us, about those of us who are called to bear the cross. So um, the martyrs were, were foretold in, in the Old Testament. So he... Irenaeus, from section 10 through section 14, um, gives an overview of all the different prophets in the Old Covenant that were pointing forward to Christ, predicted the persecution, and they were types, he says, of different operations of Christ. Different prophets pointed out different aspects of Christ. And I kind of liked it as I was reading, kind of kind of as a type of, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, later in 1 Corinthians, that, that the body consists of all different kinds of people. We all have different gifts. Well, the prophets had different gifts. And so he, there are those that some who saw... Um, the glorious abode at the right hand of the Father when they looked at the Christ, or others saw him coming in the clouds, others saw him as a judge on the day of judgment, others pointed out his beauty, other prophets pointed out his manhood, others speak about Zion and Jerusalem, others the, the Messiah curing the lame and the dead, others saw the Messiah as a weak and glorious man, of course that's Isaiah 50, 52, right? Is that 52? Um, uh, others saw him in his death, other darkness and mourning, his resurrection, and then the new covenant, the new, the new heart, the new spirit. I mean, so mm-hmm. the panoply of all the prophets. And, and, and um, you know, what I, when I was reading through that, what was in the head, in my going through my head was, the, the pedagogical method, the teaching method that Irenaeus and others of his generation are using is they've got the baptismal creed with them. And it's it's as if he's going through the, the clauses about Christ and his the personhood and his work. Um, and he just lays it out and he says, we didn't invent this. Um, this has been foretold by the prophets from the beginning. Um, he ends that section. Again, Monsignor, we'll come back to go into more detail yeah. later. He ends the section. So this is the end of chapter 33 in 15. After he's pointed out what a true spiritual disciple, how he's formed, that was the previous chapter. And then by this formation, he's able to discern 
the uh, the voices. He's able to understand prophecy and see Christ. Because the Gnostics were going everywhere with the prophets. Yeah. But a, but a truly spiritual disciple is able to hear the prophets and, and hear Christ. And um, he ends in section 15 on page 413, I think. Yeah. With a long section, um, the bottom of page, which is basically... He's pointing out the two ways. There's those who are a truly spiritual disciple, or and then down three signs from the lines from the bottom, such as depart from him. So we have those that are truly who by by their spiritual development. Through, under the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of grace, through their own surrender, they're, they're following the teaching of the church in line with the apostles, have grown to be spiritual disciples of Jesus Christ and are able to discern. And it's, it, it summarized then what they have. But on the other hand, there are those who depart from him. And those that depart from him do not develop in any of the ways that the spiritual disciple is able to develop by grace. Because that's, a, that's a, a lifelong walking with Christ. It's not a one-time thing. It's, it's a growing in grace, a growing in continuous conversion. As opposed to, if you depart from him, mm -hmm. your spiritual growth stops. Um, and that's what he talks about there. Yeah. And, and then that leads us to the, the final bookend. This man then searches out all, but himself is searched by no one. So, you know, to me, this is really a neat place in the whole book we've gotten to, right? He, he's, he's bringing it down all the way to a true follower of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, Monsignor, well, again, like I said before, we get into the details of that. I want to, and I don't want, I don't want to take too long on this, but I, I think it's important to look at First Corinthians chapter two. And the reason I say this is, when I think about the work of the Coming Home Network today, um, why do people need? Why do believing Christians need the Catholic Church? You know, why, why do we do what we do? And we can give a lot of reasons. But I, I think, given the context of the whole book of what we're doing with Irenaeus in this chapter and what it means to be a spiritual, a truly spiritual disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to look at the passage in Scripture that Paul wrote 125 or so years before Irenaeus wrote, and see that that's really what Irenaeus is dealing with in spades. And today, we're dealing with even infinitely more. And we can't pull this chapter out of the context of Irenaeus and not recognize 
how many times he says from beginning to end the necessity of being in union with our Lord Jesus and the apostles in the apostolic deposit of faith, which is preserved in the church. Because if you get apart from that, there's no way you can be sure that you can be a truly spiritual disciple of Jesus Christ. Right, Monsignor? Oh, absolutely. Amen and amen to that. I just, I think, you know, about just following the news about how even some of our bishops are going against what seems to be very clear, the very clear teachings of the apostolic faith. And, and um, it is, it's a, it's a, we are in a graver situation. I agree with you. If we um, want to know who Jesus is, and there are, I have good friends that are outside the Catholic Church. God bless them. They love Christ. And I know the ones that in my mind right now I'm thinking of, I know without any question, as far as I can tell, are truly spiritual men because of their love for Christ and their devotion to the Scriptures. But even, even understanding who Jesus is today is tough. I just read this morning that there's a new documentary coming out. It's a Catholic documentary that tells, it portrays Jesus through the icons of the LGBT movement. So it's, in other words, it's doing everything possible to, to portray Christ as a defender of LGBTQ modern doctrines, if you will. And the problem is, I've just read about this, that a number of the people that this producer of this documentary has chosen as speakers in this documentary, one of them's a cardinal, one of them's a Catholic, a couple are Catholic priests, one's a Catholic theologian who are defending things that are totally contradictory to the teaching of the church in the name of, quote, Catholic. And to me, that's what Irenaeus is talking about. Yeah. About it's false deep, teachers. It's a deep scandal. Way back, mm -hmm. possibly before the Gospels were written down, though I think Matthew had already been written down, but at least maybe before Luke and was written down, Paul wrote a letter to the Christ, Christians at Corinth who were struggling with inner battles. They were fighting with each other, groups, and I'm with Paul, and I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Jesus. You know, they were, you know, and there was scandal in the church, you know, and one guy was sleeping with his stepmother or something. I mean, you know, that's all in 1 Corinthians. People were suing one another. You know, they were talking, they're more spiritual because they spoke in tongues. That's in 1 Corinthians. I mean, all that stuff is going on. But the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of the book, excuse me, in chapter 2, Paul goes on, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I read that verse, I hear Irenaeus. Yeah, that's right. Because that those sections on martyrdom in, in chapter 33, it goes right to this. He, he must have had this chapter very close to his heart. It, it, it's as if Irenaeus 
knew viscerally what Paul was fighting about 125 years before. And now in the year 175, the devil is just taking this and running rampant with it. That's what the whole part of the book so far have been about. Paul goes on, and I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's Irenaeus. This is what Irenaeus is trying to, to say. Uh, all these words of wisdom out there. And think about it, gang. This is before the internet. <laughs> before Facebook. Before Twitter. Before every single person had an equal voice in this world. Or now, we you have the, those that are running these technological uh, communications are preventing. They, would, they wouldn't let, would they let Irenaeus speak? No. That's what. He would have been banned. <laughs> and then he goes on. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. Monsignor, what do you think he means by the word mature? I don't you think it's a lot like where we are in chapter 33. <laughs> That's I mean, because it's that what is the word you use? We're going to call our episode today the, the true, truly spiritual. Yeah, the disciple. truly spiritual disciple. You know, I you brought this out very clearly. Um, uh, Irenaeus must have had this chapter of Paul right next to him as he was working on this. Among the mature. He's not talking about just old folk. You know, he's talking about those who have surrendered to Jesus Christ. Those who have surrendered to the apostolic tradition. In in Second Thessalonians, uh, 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 um, oh my, I'm having a mental thing here. Uh, 215, Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians 215, uh, where he says, stand firm. Second Thessalonians, excuse me, 2.15. To this he called you through your gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So Paul is telling these Corinthians that are going all over the place, stand firm on the, these are Thessalonians, but he's also telling the Corinthians, stand firm to that tradition. You're going to be inundated with voices. 125 years later, Irenaeus is saying what? Stand firm. Hold to the apostolic tradition that is preserved in the church. And these many centuries later, we're inundated with voices. And we're told that we have to listen to all these alternative perspectives. It's never been more important. And he uses, the reason I wanted us to hear the words of Paul is because he says, 
to these mature, in other words, to those that are spiritually humble and spiritually in line with Christ, he imparted a a wisdom, a secret and hidden wisdom of God. I imagine, Monsignor, if we look, those are the word for word of what the Gnostics are using and claiming that they have. I'm sure, well, they were. We know from other texts, we know that's what they were using. They were using St. Paul to claim that they had a more clear understanding of Christ. Because remember Marcion... His, his New Testament had Matthew in it and the writings of Paul, and that was about it. So, Right. I think the Ebionites were doing the same thing. The Ebionites liked Matthew, but they didn't like the other ones because Ebionites was... Yeah. was, yeah. was. So once again, again, I'm pointing to non-Catholic Christians out there who... I'm not looking down or, or, or pointing a finger. I'm just saying the reality is, you know, a preacher gets up on a Sunday and, and preaches on this... How's he going to interpret whether your particular slant of Christianity is holding true to the secret and hidden wisdom of God that Paul pointed on, passed on? How do you know for sure? Aaron answers says, how do you know for sure? Well, that's what we've been pointing out. He has over and over the summary of this is how you know what's true. It's in Irenaeus over and over and over again. He goes on, none of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What did our Lord say from the cross? Forgive them. They don't know it. They don't understand what they're doing. They didn't understand who he was. That's what Paul says. But as it is written, when no eye has, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, that reminds me of what we said. We studied a couple uh, weeks ago, Monsignor, when he, he says that you, you, you can't know God through his glory. You know him through love. That's how you come to know God, is through love, to see God. And that's what he is, is, Paul was saying here. Uh, for those who love him. 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now again, if if we looked at the summary that St. Irenaeus had at the end of chapter 32, and we look at the summary that he's going to have on in, Chapter 33, verse 8, it is all about being guided by the Spirit. That's all through this section. And now we're getting to the part where it's most pertinent. 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, and we might understand the gifts bestowed us by God. He's discerning the Spirit's. I'm almost thinking of 1 John here, too. How do you discern the spirits? How do you discern the antichrists that are everywhere? I mean, it's kind of the same thing that uh, the, the two biblical authors were dealing with and Irenaeus is picking up on. Three, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. This is Irenaeus. This this is Irenaeus. This is what he's trying to say all the way through. Because the problem is the words taught in human wisdom are all these people coming up with all these different explanations of God and the God before God and the God before the God before the God before the mother or the, you know, that's the Marcionites and all these things. No, we have to listen to the Spirit. And then 14 and 15. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are holy, they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, Monsignor, I didn't intend that we would do a Bible study on that. But by hearing the words, I would ask you, because you might be wondering, well, what did he mean by this? What did he mean by that? What did he mean that the human words? What what did Paul mean that um, that he can judge others but not be judged? What does he mean by that? My bottom line is Irenaeus is saying the way you know what that means is by being in union with the apostolic deposit of faith, guarded by the church, so that whatever, however you interpret that, it's within the bounds of what is true. Because if you try to interpret those scriptures outside of that, who knows where you're going to end up? And that's the point of the whole first part of Against Heresies. Who knows where you're going to end up? That's right, yeah. Because, you know, uh, as Paul said, you know, um, the the one who suffers judgment is the one who stands outside of what is true and right. I, that's how I probably took it. Um, what, what Irenaeus is saying too, is if you're in the church and focused squarely on the truth, then um, that judgment won't come to you. you. You're judged by no one then because you're, there's nothing to be, there's nothing wrong about you to be judged. You'll later on in in chapter thirty three when you get to the two ways. We know how difficult it's going to be for those that are outside the truth. But when I think of those passages, and again, my my, my point in having us do this is that you and I can give our opinions of what that means. Yeah. But even as we sit here, there are thousands of other Christians out there interpreting it, and who knows which way. So how do you know it's true? When I hear that passage, what I'm remembering is the words of Christ to his apostles that said, they're going to reject you because they don't know you, because they don't know the Father. If they knew the Father, Jesus said, they would know me. But because they don't know the Father, they don't know me. And because they don't know the Father and they don't know me, they're not going to understand you. He's saying this to the disciples. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. You're going to be hated. You're going to be hated because the people in the world are not going to understand. And they don't, because they don't understand the Father, they're not going to understand me and they're not going to understand you. 
But you, if you are in me, Christ said, if you abide in me and I, and I will abide in you, if you abide in my word, you will obey my commandments. This is John 15, that whole section. Whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you. So we're talking about the discernment that they're given because they're in Christ. And so they will have the ability, given the Spirit, to discern, but the people out there are not going to be able to discern us. That's why when we say, don't they understand? Look at the craziness in our world. Look at the craziness of the violence. You know, the craziness in the politics. You Unless you're in mm -hmm. Christ. And if anything, some would say, well, as a in the Coming Home Network, and we're telling people you need to become Catholic, well, we're standing in judgment of all those. No. If anything, our motive is the exact same motive that Irenaeus had. Let me read the last paragraph of chapter Book three, and then Monsignor, I'm going to turn it over to you. This is the last paragraph of book three. He says, now we will proceed in the following book, that's the book four we're in, page 307, to adduce certain discourses of our Lord in addition to what has been said, if happily convincing some of them by the very doctrine of Christ, we may persuade them to cease from that kind of error and withdraw from the blasphemy which is directed against their maker, who is both God alone and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not standing in judgment. That's not what the truly spiritual disciple does. He's been given the ability to serve, but his, his, his reason is not to stand in judgment, but to beckon. He wants those Marcionites yeah. to become truly spiritual disciples, those Valentinians, the schismatics, those outside the church. And so the truly spiritual disciple has been given the gift to be able to discern what's, how they've gone off base, not to stand in judgment, but to help them see where they've gone wrong, that they might come home. All right, Monsignor, I've talked too much. No, thank you very much. Um, I thought that was very helpful to point out the that context, that Pauline context in this chapter. Um, and, I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking Paul began chapter 2, that he would know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I find it interesting in uh, book 4, chapter 33, Irenaeus suddenly introduces the idea of the call of the vocation of martyrdom. Um, right. You know, and because... Well, it reminds you know, me of what the reading was today in today's Office of Reading from Cyril's Catechetical Instructions. Yeah. Today is a Thursday of, I forget what week it is, Monsignor. I always just look it up. Uh, fourth, fourth Sunday of OT. Okay, so if you yeah. go into the Office of Readings and look at today's readings from Cyril, it's about the cross. The cross. Yeah. He, he talks about the importance of, of the cross. Uh, right, Monsignor? All right, Monsignor, I'd like you to let's start back up and uh, walk our way through some point, just point out some things um, in sec <clears throat> section one, the truly spiritual disciple 
but it does say a long list of things that he has been giving the gifts to judge. And, um, yeah, and so in section one, um, he, he speaks about, um, uh, he, he speaks about uh, Gentiles and, and Jews there. So we can, we can move over that. In section two, he begins to talk about um, the heresies of his own day. And so it's a kind of a summation. What follows is a kind of summation of what, what you guys are going to be facing out there. I mean, remember, he's writing to the bishops and um, he's kind of giving them some help on this. These are the things that are going on in our, our parish churches. Let's be sharp and acute about this. So the first one in section uh, two of chapter 33, we meet up with the Marcionites um, and uh, their doctrine of two gods, um, the higher God, and then that bad God of the Old Testament and the battles that went on between them. Um, and he points out something here that I thought people would be really interested in right in the middle of that section um, on page 405. Um, so if there are two gods, as the Marcionites suggest, then Jesus Christ has a problem because who is his father? And the Marcionites say, well, obviously he's father to the, that true God that is beyond the God of the Old Testament. And, and Irenaeus says, comes back and says, well, if that's the case, you Marcionites, what do you think you're doing when you're celebrating the Eucharist? Because he says here, how if this creation with which we are concerned belongs to another father, did the Lord deal justly in taking bread, which was part of it and professing it to be his own body or in declaring the mixture in the chalice to be his own blood. So I, I, that jumped out at me um, that the Eucharist that the Marcionites obviously celebrated was invalid. Was Behind this is, am I right, the Gnostics yeah. had this, you know, the view that the physical is bad. The spiritual right. is good. Right. So this earth is bad. What we see is bad. It's spiritual. So we have the, the creator gods, the bad god, but before him was the good god. And so he's saying, well, wait a second here. You're taking the stuff from the bad god. Yeah, that's right. That's it. And using it for the Eucharist? You know, how, how does that make sense? Do you know what's in here, though, folks? Is you see Irenaeus' assumption of the real presence. Yes. He, 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 without question, he affirms the reality of the true presence of body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. That's right. All right, Monsignor. And, of course, then he finishes that chapter by um, speaking of the real suffering of Jesus and his resurrection, the resurrection of the body. Um, there, Mark, it's just one little aside before we go on to the next section. Yes. I was, I was thinking again, it, well, I was reading this, I was remembering my days as a graduate student um, many years ago now, back in the 1980s, listening to 
university professors of theology talking about the resurrection as a metaphor. Yeah, Boltmann. I mean, it's just amazing when you think about that. And that, of course, probably is, you know, infecting a lot of people today. Um, that, you know, one day you might, you might uh, turn on PBS and hear somebody saying, we've just found the body of Christ in this little tomb. I mean, that's the kind of things they were, they were, they were trying to talk about. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I am. Yeah, boy, we could get off going on here. Um, I know. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. What you, uh, yeah. you no, it wasn't that. It was the fact yeah. that there are, there are things that biblical theologians talk amongst themselves when they deal with the problems of scripture that they should keep to themselves. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 pertinent yeah. for them to to talk about the problems they see when they get down deep into the original texts, and they might question, did Paul really write Ephesians? And they can. That's right. They should argue that, but it should stay within their office and not end up in a, a common Bible study or a common class taught to freshmen at a local college. To me, that's irresponsible. And that's so leaked out in the last 200 years that it's undercut people's trustworthiness of Scripture and the church. It's just like what you're talking about. You know, Boltmann has some wild ideas about the resurrection of Jesus Christ really being symbolic or something. Well, he can talk about that in his office or, you know, over a, a bourbon with his other theologians. But to, to publicly undercut people's faith with that totally theoretical, totally theoretical stuff. To me, a good example of that is the JEDP uh, yeah. theory of the Old Testament. You know, leave that in the in the in your in your study, but don't put that in the class because it's totally a theory. There's nothing to back it. The guy who founded it, a guy by the name of Wellhausen, who was the son of a Lutheran pastor in Germany in the late 18th, 19th century, lost his faith because of it. And so we 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 carry that on, and that's that's what you're talking about. This. The, the crazy and the stuff that's there behind all this. Yeah. Well, okay. Anyway, well, in section three, um, he introduces us to, or we learn about the Valentinians again, how we can discern their false doctrine. And he, he points out um, that their very bizarre idea that, um, that uh, this, their doctrine of emanations leads to the most, the most extraordinarily weird stuff, because um, they would, um, well, they say here, and they say the one Lord Jesus Christ um, is the product of four emanations. Look at the bottom of page four hundred five. Um, there's one special emanation that relates to Christ, the only begotten. Another to the Word another to Christ, another to the Savior. So there's four different emanations that basically there's four different persons in Christ, if you will, almost. 
um, he doesn't use that language exactly here, but um, but obviously, um, how can the one Lord Jesus Christ be the product of four emanations? Yeah. That means four fathers, basically, uh, or or maybe mothers are involved too. And he concludes that section um, by speaking about, I, it's a great line he has here, in the middle of page 406, how shall they be accused by a prophet of their own, even Homer, by whom they were trained to such inventions? His words are, for he is hateful to me, even as the gates of hell, who hides one thing in his heart and utters another. And it's just a great, he's having fun, Irenaeus, at this point, because the Gnostics you know, claim to be lovers of Greek philosophy, um, but yet one of the great figures of, of Greek culture, Homer, um, will call them out for their idea that, um, you know, they can have their own secret thing for themselves, but then for all of us stupid people, there's something else. There's also a section in there, Monsignor, if I could add a word in here yeah, about, sure. okay, about yeah. false unity. About false unity, it's in that middle of that paragraph, the top of four hundred six. You know, the yeah. different tongues. You know, they have, they have a number of tongues, meaning that they had different opinions on where Christ came from, uh, and yet they say it follows that their tongues alone tended towards unity, while their view and thought, searching out all deep things, falls away from unity. And incurs God's manifold judgment when they shall be inquired of by Christ about their own inventions. In other words, we'll stand before God for our theories. And, you know, the, the truth is that the theories destroy the very unity they're trying to get. I, I, re- I don't want to go into this, but I happen to read the document that the World Council of Churches has just put out uh, for the 2022 convention. And if you read that, it, it sounds great. It's all about love. We just got to love. From the beginning, it's about love. But when you're, when you, if you, if you listen to what's not being said, it basically said all of your differences just leave at the door, and then we'll get together united in love, as if our differences make no difference at all. Yeah. And he's saying here, no, it's your differences that are destroying the unity we're supposed to have in Christ. Great point. Preventing us from being able to love because of our differences. So we have to be able to discern which of those differences is true. And of course, that brings us back to everything Irenaeus is trying to do in this whole book. But all right, Masi. Well, then, and then I can just going on quickly here on middle of page 406 in chapter or section four. We meet up with the Ebionites, and um, in discerning the Ebionites, the question is, how could they be saved by Christ when they deny uh, the incarnation? Um, The only thing I want to say here is, and this is interesting, that Irenaeus treats the Ebionites with the Gnostics, because we would typically not do that now. Um, The Ebionites have no interest in philosophy the way the Gnostics did. Um, the Ebionites are, they were a, basically a Jewish Christian sect that wanted to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. They were 
you know, they were in love with a prophet, with a human being. And um, the, the Gnostics are altogether different about how they approach it. But Irenaeus seems to put them all together in this. Um, and obviously they were a problem for the early church. And so that's what he's done. The Ebionites show up in the writings of Origen and Tertullian and others uh, talk about the Ebionites that keep showing up. And when yeah. you look at the history of the church, there are a number of Christian groups that break away from the church over the battle of words, if you will. You know, the the Coptic Christians couldn't accept Chalcedon, and so they've been divided ever since. And there's all different groups. It's possible the Ebionites were one of the earliest breakaway groups in the history of the church, because they may not have liked the Jerusalem Council. They did not believe that this that Jesus Christ was the son of God in truth. They thought he was the son of Joseph. Yeah. Which I think Irenaeus deals with in another part of his book. But if you remember in in the problem in in Acts chapter 15, in the Jerusalem council, what was the issue? These Judaizers who could not accept the authority of the church concerning circumcision— and so the church came down and, and said it's that, that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. And so is it possible that some of those very Jewish Christians were not happy with the decision because one thing the Ebionites continue to do is circumcise? Yeah, they, yeah, that's right. They kept all those rituals going. Yeah, yeah. All right, Matthew. In section five, next page, um, treats the Docetists, um, and they're just the opposite of the Ebionites. The Docetists believe that Christ had no real humanity, um, that, that he was only an appearance, a ghost, if you will. Okay. So when Christ was suffering on the cross, that was not a real man on the cross. That, that was just a spirit. And so it didn't hurt. Basically, that's the, the Docetist um, argument. And then we meet up with, in section six, false prophets. And the false prophets that, that he seems to be speaking about um, are um, basic. How would you describe them, Mar- Marcus? It would be like they're kind of like independent operators that have set up their own churches for their own benefit. So they they kind of have their own doctrines and all that, but it's um, they don't remain in the church, but either through vain glory or for profit or some other way. Um, I think they have some. The, t- I think they have TV shows uh, today. <laughs> That's right. That's there there right. are there, especially if you're on one of the satellites. You can go check all those channels, and they're up there. They're still there. Yeah. And of course, and of course, you know the um, the great, the, you know, the earliest of them was be Simon Magus. You know, he was uh, he wanted when he wasn't accepted by the apostolic circle, he wanted to go off and start his own um, church business, if you will, and eventually winds up in Rome. Um, so, uh, the, and chapter nine, oh no, chapter sorry, sorry, um, chapter seven. Mm-hmm we meet up with the schismatics um, who have broken communion with the church. Um, 
And I thought what was interesting here, one of the things I thought was interesting here was the end of that first paragraph at the very bottom of page 407. Yes. Yes. This is kind of relevant to where we all are. No, but no reformation can ensue by their means so great as the mischief of the schism. So in other words, that maybe they had some good points about reforming the church, but they went off on their own. Reminds me of a quote, I wish I had it in front of me, by St. Augustine, which he basically says, no matter how bad the leadership of the church gets, there's never justification for schism. I don't know if that, right. I don't know if that was something yeah. he wrote to the Donatists or or someone, but he, he basically just carries on what Irenaeus says here, that there's never justification for schism. So do you think we could put that in a little postcard and send it to Martin Luther? Uh, well, <laughs> first we recognize that, and I do, I recognize that uh, we have to be careful when we throw our judgment back at Martin Luther because it was a complicated time. Uh, there were people that 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 felt because of the leadership that it was so bad that they they had no option but schism. We don't want to stand in judgment of them because sometimes the leaders were pretty nasty. They were pretty nasty. Yeah. But yeah, I know. And, but I'll say one thing: that's not the, what's going on here, though. These 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 people these schismaters are not because the pope or the bishops are totally scandalous and everything, so they feel the need to schism. That's not what this is about. They're doing it for profit because they think they've got it all figured out. It's a whole different issue here. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, I think Section 8 and Section 9 basically stand together. Um, The other thing we were talking about before we started the show, um, that he has um, in... Um, well, I mean, those who are outside the truth are outside the church. Yes. Um, and to a faithful Catholic, um, to the spiritual man he's talking about, to him, all is consistent. And so everything fits together. One God Almighty, one Son, Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit, um, and it, it you know, and that teaching in every generation. And then he comes to section eight. Yeah, and what I would say, those those you're looking at this on page 48, if you will, the end of the sentence that goes from 407, the truth, i.e. outside the church, at that point is his ending of the list of those uh voices that the the spiritual man can discern are wrong. And then he begins with the word, but, but he himself will be judged of no man. Once again, there's 1 Corinthians 2, 15. Right. Okay. But from there, through the end of section eight is the summary of the foundation of a truly spiritual disciple. You know, read all that down through there for yourself. Though Monsignor, you want, especially section eight, Monsignor is just, yeah, is awesome. Well, he, he speaks, Marcus, about apostolic succession. Yes. That it's the guarantee of the truth and the right interpretation of the scriptures. Um, he, 
Another sentence that jumped out at me in the very middle of the page, of page 408, um, um, well, not, not quite in the middle, but several successions of the bishops. So we're, we're several generations in at this point, but he's clearly thinking of how apostolic su- succession functions. And, and they have been faithful. Um, um, they have exercised an uncorrupt guardianship of the scriptures a very full mode of teaching of the scriptures by which has come down to us by uncorrupt guardianship, admitting neither addition nor diminution and reading without adulteration and exposition according to the scriptures, legitimate and diligent, without peril and without blasphemy. Um, The most eminent gift of love, which is more precious than knowledge, and more glorious than prophecy, and more exalted than all the other gifts. Yeah. So you know the church has been blessed by these faithful bishops in the succession. Yeah, I'll I'll point out uh, this is a great paragraph. It really is, and if in my mind it's a benchmark in the history of the church, at this point in time, Irenaeus is able to say this. Um, what's going to happen in the next couple of centuries is we're going to have theologians and bishops at each other's throats over the interpretation of the apostolic deposit of faith. It's going to get real complicated, and it's going to get nasty, and it's not very pretty, and there's going to be schisms, and there's going to be heretics, and it's going to come. It's I mean, it's happening here, but it's going to... It's going to be more inside the church. Mm -hmm. And so the issue is we're going to have, in a couple hundred years, Vincent of Lorenz, and then in 1,600 years, we're going to have Newman, and we're going to, well, in 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 1,500 years, we're going to have Bousset, and then we're going to have Newman, and we're going to have others trying to figure out how do you understand things which appear to be additions? Because he's saying here, no, no, they've guarded it. No additions, no subtractions. But now we've, we've got caught up in whether Jesus had two wills or not. How do we understand that? Two natures, one nature. Mm-hmm. And, and bishops otherwise are faithful, believing Christians, but they've left charity at the door, and, and they're fighting over the meaning of whether you put the, an I in a word or not, to have homoousius or homoousius, you know. It, and so that isn't an issue yet here, but it will become historically. That's why, this, to me, this is a benchmark. And it just jumps out at us, I think. You know, in our community and the Coming Home Network, I mean, this is what we've all made this journey for, um, to be in this community of faith that's based on the apostolic succession, a faithful apostolic succession. Right. I, I love it. It's just... Well, let's see. Monsignor, you want to uh, try and summarize or, or glo- jump around well, over the, some of the rest here? Yeah, just a, you know, I think the next, the last part of uh, chapter 34 or chapter 33, first of all, we're going to come across 
um, the witness of the martyrs in, in, in section nine. And I, you know, that was kind of chapter nine and, and chapter 10 um, are important too, because he's, he's praising the witness of the martyrs. Um, he says the Gnostics think it's unnecessary to be a martyr um, because what, why bother with the body one way or the other? So mm -hmm. there's no need to suffer. Um, but he speaks about how the church alone um, honors the martyrs, the very top of page 409. Mm -hmm. This the church alone purely sustains. Um, so I just think that's really impressive um, to see this, this devotion, this veneration of the martyrs. Um, Already, it's coming into the into the into the life of the church. Yeah, this is very early for those of you that don't realize. One seventy-five. The major yeah. persecutions haven't happened yet. Yeah. Oh, it's very impressive. And then you know, it's chapter ten or section ten, um, he goes on to say that we shouldn't. This isn't a surprise. The the prophets themselves foretold the witness of the martyrs. Um, and, and so, you know, he's writing, I think, to the Christians of his day to help them make sense of the persecution they're suffering and to point out that this is all part of God's saving plan. This is all part of the divine economy. Um, then the next section, um, uh, in uh, especially section 11, um, what jumped out at me, we talked about this a little bit too beforehand, Marcus, um, the prophets, um, he points out that the prophets, each of them have some specific calling to, um, to, to, you know, to foretell the coming work of Christ. And what you have here in section 11 is basically a, an index of the prophecies about Jesus Christ that we find in the Old Testament. And for, you know, it's it's basically a fantastic faith formation class, section 11. Um, we learn about all the different aspect, aspects of Christ that the prophets foretold. His divinity, his, his acting, his judge, as judge, his beauty and why we want to be with him, his incarnation, his advent in, in Bethlehem, um, that he would do healing miracles. Then uh, in section 12, they go on to argue or, or show the prophets show how Christ would suffer and die and even proclaim the actual hour in which um, he, would, he would suffer martyrdom, he would be crucified. Um, and in section 13, um, speaking about his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and his coming again in great glory. Um, so basically all the things that we profess about Jesus Christ in the creed, he's showing all of these things were foretold by the prophets beforehand. And in this section... I think his point was not so much to focus on those specific things, but to say a truly spiritual disciple will see these things. That's right. 
a person who's been formed in the teaching of the church with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, guided by grace, will read the prophets and will see the witness of Christ all the way through. We'll see this. And if, um, you know, and if, a, if the spiritual disciple, the faithful Christian, really knows his scriptures and, and in the church understands how to read them, he or she will have the ability to recognize false teachers when they come along um, that are going to say, well, this part of what you say about Jesus isn't true. Um, and and then they'll try to argue that, it, you know, there was nothing in scripture about this or that. Um, but here we have, you know, a listing or an index of those passages in the Old Testament that's that said this was exactly what was going to happen. Again, as I mentioned earlier, 1 John chapter 2, children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. Once again, Monsignor, this is Irenaeus. This is Irenaeus, that's what the book yeah. is. He's talking about all the antichrists that are out there that have gone out from us. Then, then John goes, but you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy One, and you all know. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and know that no lie is of the truth. So he's going on to say that a spiritual man will know these things. That's what John was saying in First John. Yeah. Well, Marcus, this, if I... Could, yes, go ahead. I, Oh, I, no, I didn't mean to get ahead of you, but I wanted to read just the opening of, of section 15. Oh, I was going to have you read that whole thing. That's almost, that's great. Yes, please okay. do. Okay, well, we're on the right part yes. pathway here. So we're in page 413 here. I'll read some of it, and then if you want to carry on, you go on. Okay. <clears throat> but this is, this is a fabulous summation here. And all the rest which the prophet says we have shown and said in all that, that long course of scripture, he who is truly spiritual will interpret, pointing out to which aspect of the Lord's providential word each one of the things which have been said have been said appertains, and exhibiting the entire body of the work of the Son of God, always knowing the same God and always acknowledging the same word of God, though he be but now made manifest unto us and always recognizing the same spirit of God, though in the last times he be newly poured out upon us and upon mankind itself from the creation to the ends of the world, from which, from whom such as believe God and follow his word, obtain the salvation which is of him. Um, so I mean, just the unity of of the whole salvation story, the unity of revelation, divine revelation. Um, just, it's just beautiful here. Now I'm going to turn over to you. Well, that to me, this whole, this last paragraph talks about the two ways. Yeah. It talks about the two ways. And if, if you've surrendered to Jesus Christ and been reborn again through baptism and faith, and therefore anointed by the Holy Spirit in your new creation, and you abide in him by grace as he called us to in, in John 15, and you're 
listening, you know, the catechetical instruction that the early Christians would have had. You know, you learn the Our Father, you learn the Creed, you, 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 you become a part of the episode, you learn all of that. As a result of that, you grow in grace, you grow in your understanding, and you grow, as he said, to be able to understand what the prophets were saying about Christ. You get to understand the falsity in these other false voices out there. Um, and he summarized all that. You grow to understand. But then he goes on. This is the other way. Now, that's the way of, of righteousness. But the other way, he says, but such as depart from him and despise his precepts and by their works dishonor him who made them and by their views blaspheme him who nourishes them, heap up a most righteous judgment against themselves. They stop their spiritual growth. They no longer see the prophets for what they meant to say. They, they become victims of all these other voices. And so the point of Irenaeus is stay true to the apostolic faith and the church as he began this section, right? Mm -hmm. On the top of page 40, oh, excuse me, back to 44, I think, where was that at? That whole section about holding on to the apostolic faith as it is preserved in the church. And of course, then he ends with this man then searches out all, but is himself searched out of no man, neither speaking evil of his father, nor making his arrangements void, nor accusing fathers, nor dishonoring prophets, either by saying that they are of another God or that they have been prophecies over and over of this and that material. They haven't been bought up into that other stuff. They hold true to that which they've received from the beginning. Monsignor, any final word before I ask you to close us in prayer, if you would? Well, uh, Marcus, I just want to um, thank you for helping us to see how this chapter uh, 33 um, is encompassed by um, 1 Corinthians 2.15. Mm. We've got a real insight into how St. Irenaeus was doing his work that day that he wrote this um, well, he gave us the he, clues because he was quoting from it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a deeply, deeply sp spiritual and, and scriptural man he was. Yeah. And well, that's what, you know, I finished this section. I thought that's the call to all of us um, that in order to be deeply spiritual, um, we need to know the scriptures and we need to be able to read them in the right way. Yeah. We can't just trust that Irenaeus knew him. And so I read his book. We need to know him ourselves. That's what yeah. he would be saying. All right, Monsignor. Thank you for that. Oh. We'll, we'll pick up next week with section 34. I'm not sure how far we go on this. I forget what we, in my notes here where I thought we'd go. We'll go as far as we can because we want to progress and jump into... We've only got about uh, 33 pages before we're in book five. So that's our goal at this point. All right, Monsignor. And I'm going to close, Marcus, today with um, the 
prayer for peace that is in the um, in the ordinary um, uh, divine office. Okay. Um, which is this was in the Book of Common Prayer, but through the grace of God, now this has been approved as a liturgical text in the Catholic Church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom, defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversities through the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. God bless. Okay, you too, Monsignor. Thank you very much. And all of you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. Please go to our website, see if you haven't already, chnetwork.org, and become a part of the community where you can not only continue listening to these programs, but all the other programs we have there, and you can get into conversations about them. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. See you again next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.